Now hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he, being Jesus, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him and with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now from Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And now lastly from Isaiah chapter 51 verses 9 and 10. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dodds, uh, like Adam said, and I'm one of the pastors here. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Mark. And as we have already seen over these past seven weeks, Mark writes at a, a breakneck pace. Matthew's gospel account of John the Baptist preaching takes up 12 verses. Mark uses three. Matthew describes the temptation scene in 11 verses. Mark uses two. Matthew takes four chapters to outline a genealogy and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But Mark has Jesus born, baptized, tempted, and calling his disciples before he's even halfway through the first chapter. So it's no wonder one of Mark's favorite words is immediately. And if Matthew presents Jesus as a new Moses, as a rabbi, as a teacher, Mark seems to present Jesus as a man of action, one who's always on the move, a new David, a warrior. For Matthew, Jesus is what he teaches, 
For Mark, Jesus is what he does. For Matthew, being a disciple means holding to all the words that Jesus speaks. But for Mark, discipleship involves following Jesus and doing what he does. In these opening chapters of Mark, we've seen Jesus do quite a lot. He bursts onto the scene as a champion, conquering enemy after enemy. Driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit after his baptism, like a faithful Adam, he overcomes the devil and he survives among wild beasts. He rebukes unclean spirits both inside and outside the synagogue, commanding them to come out of people and they obey. King David calmed evil spirits with his music, but Jesus, the son of David, drives out demons with a word. In the text that's even ahead of our own today, Jesus sends out a legion of demons into a herd of pigs and sees them drowned. You see, Jesus can defeat single demons, but he can also expel an entire demonic regiment. Jesus is so strong that some claim that he's relying on the power of the devil, and they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And Jesus responds with a little parable, an allegory. No one can plunder the strong man unless he can bind him. You see, only a stronger man can bind and plunder a strong man. Jesus is the stronger man, the royal son of God, the Davidic warrior king who has come to demon-infested Israel in order to take the human plunder, his people, from the devil's house. And Mark shows us a, a very different picture of Israel's predicament. Her enemy, Israel's enemy, isn't Rome, it's Satan. She suffers a more oppressive slavery than ever before, not to human rulers, but to demons. Demons who are even bold enough to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath. See, Israel doesn't need a savior who can fight off a legion of Roman soldiers. She needs someone strong enough to cast a legion of demons into the sea like Pharaoh and his hosts. That's the exodus that Israel needs. It's the exodus that Jesus has come to lead, an exodus, an exodus from slavery, an exodus from the rule of the prince of this world. Now, before we, before we get into our text this morning, I want us to notice something that Mark has ordered in his gospel because it's going to help us just with the context here. L leading up to our text are three parables that Jesus teaches about the kingdom, about his kingdom. The parable of the sower, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. These parables are then followed by three miracles that Jesus performs. He calms the storm, he heals the demoniac, and he heals two women, one who has been sick for 12 years and one who is 12 years old. Could that mean something? Absolutely, but we don't have time to get to that. What I do want us to consider is that Jesus teaches three parables and then he performs three parables. He tells about the growing kingdom of God and then he shows the power of the kingdom of God. The power of God's kingdom is breaking into the world, and these are the signs of new life in the kingdom. And our passage today is no exception. Peace and healing are being established by Jesus. 
So let's go back to our text again. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. This is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So last week, Jesus was teaching in this boat, but now he's chartered this boat. Three times in Mark's gospel, we see the disciples in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. And each time, they end up very confused, very frightened, and they don't know exactly what's going on. They don't know exactly what Jesus is doing. But throughout the Old Testament, Israel's leaders had been trained as shepherds, but as soon as the New Testament begins, the scenery flips. The Gospels don't take place in remote pasture lands, but on the shores of Galilee. And Jesus doesn't choose shepherds, he chooses fishermen. And this was important because the sea was baffling and threatening, especially to a land-based people like Israel. In the Old Testament especially, the, the sea is associated with death, the abyss. It's associated with Satan. It's associated with the Gentiles and the power of Gentile nations that were, in Israel's mind, a, a threat. So the sea is a picture of chaos. It's the forces of the world that no man, woman, or child can tame. But Jesus crosses the sea in a boat with his disciples, with other boats following, and this incredible windstorm starts to overtake the boat. Now, if we're reading closely, there are some distinct, there's, there's a distinct resemblance between this story and the story of Jonah. In fact, the way Mark narrates, the story seems to have been influenced by the events of Jonah. Let's just consider a few of these. Jonah and Jesus both get into boats. Both of them are headed for Gentile lands to bring good news. A storm arises on the sea that threatens everyone on board and they all panic. Both Jonah and Jesus are sleeping in the boats and are awakened by others. They are both questioned and told that everyone on board may die. The sea becomes calm and everyone responds with fear. Now, the fact that those stories are so similar and there's so many similar points, like, should grab our attention. What does this mean? Jesus and Jonah, seemingly in this passage, are quite alike. However, it's also important for us to notice how incredibly different they are. See, Jonah was fleeing from the will of God. Jesus was fulfilling the will of God. Jonah's presence was the reason the storm arose, but Jesus' presence was the reason the storm stilled. Jonah woke up, but he didn't call upon the Lord. Jesus woke up and was called upon by the disciples. Jonah was on the boat to avoid the Gentiles, but Jesus was on the boat to go to the Gentiles. 
Jonah was thrown into the sea and the storm ceased. Jesus rebuked the sea and the storm ceased. Jonah had to be delivered from death, but Jesus delivers everyone from death. Jesus is greater than Jonah. He surpasses Jonah. And even himself, in Matthew 12, Jesus insisted that something greater than Jonah is here. And who is this something that is greater than Jonah? The disciples ask it too at the end. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, the disciples aren't sure who Jesus is. Who can calm a storm at a sea with a rebuke? Who can speak authoritatively to creation itself? Who can speak authoritatively to the wind and the sea and say, stop? Even our psalm today that Adam read for us, amazing. Let's, read it, let's just read a portion of it again, starting in verse 25. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, they mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven." The resemblance between Mark 4 and Psalm 107 is astounding. It's really arresting. Mark 4 looks like a narrative based upon the psalm. And so, if that's true, if, if Jesus wanted the disciples to see that, if he wants us to see that, what are we to conclude about the identity of Jesus, since his role in the story is precisely the role that's ascribed to the Lord in Psalm 107. See, the disciples should know who he is. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. That's David in Psalm 89. Yahweh tramples down the waves of the sea, says Job. See, only Yahweh, only God can do this. By stilling storms and having authority over the sea, Jesus shows that he's more than just a mighty man. Jesus' mastery over the wind and waves shows that he has a power assigned to the Lord God alone because it's God who rebuked the waters and formed the dry land in Genesis. It's God who parted the sea for Israel's exodus. It's God who made the storm be still. See, Jesus is the master of the sea as well as the demons. He is a greater prophet than Jonah, a greater king than David, and he forgives sins on his own authority without sacrifice. He has authority over nature, authority over demons, authority over sickness and death as we'll see. He alone can bring peace and calm to the roaring sea. He alone can bring peace to the roaring of the nations of our world. Truly, he is God's son. He is king of the sea, king of the nations, king of creation.
Jesus sleeps as the storm rises, but then Jesus rises and the storm sleeps. See, it's a picture. It's a picture of his coming death and resurrection. And just as Jonah was thrown into the heart of the sea for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be thrown into the heart of the earth. He will succumb to the rising waters of man's sin and chaos. And on the third day, he bursts forth from the deep to give new life to the whole world. And he's going to commission his disciples to help take this gospel to new Gentile shores. What we've just read, the picture, the, those, those six verses in Mark 4, it's a picture of the church. We have Jesus we have his disciples, we have a boat, we have the waters that are representative of Gentile nations. Jesus and his disciples set out on their boats amidst Gentile seas with their savior aboard to see to their protection as they carry the gospel message to new people and new shores. Launching out from the land of Judea, the church is a ship a little bit of land on the water. That's what a ship is. It's a little bit of land on the water, tossed about by the waves. And Jesus is really trying to get us to see here, he's trying to get us to see that the church's future success, because someday the apostles will all be going out into the chaotic nation seas of the world to reach those outside of God's family. And Jesus will still be with them. That's us here today. Thousands of years later, we stand in a ship, in a ship, set, <laughs> set in the Gentile waters of Houston, Texas. And in our shrill and angry world, Jesus issues us the same call. The church will do much good by the power of his spirit that is within us. It will be light and life in the world. It will ride high the places of the earth as we exercise faith and trust in him and trust his call to us. And in setting sail, we will face what the disciples faced. If we can backtrack a little bit, they are undone on the boat in the storm. Jesus is asleep and they are frantic. Teacher, we're dying. Don't you care? What are you going to do? They do turn to Jesus most certainly, but they don't turn to him in trust. They, they turn in cowardly panic. They want Jesus to help. They want Jesus to help. But as Anthony Bloom observes, they want him to be as anxious as they are. They can't imagine Jesus will help unless he too panics. I know that we've been there where we see something that we're worried about and we tell someone else about it and they go, I think it'll be fine. And we're like, okay, all right, you're insane. 
Only if you match my fear are you trustworthy. But Jesus doesn't do that. The disciples follow Jesus into the boat and onto the sea, and they find that they have immediately followed him into mortal danger. And having followed him into that danger, they watch Jesus seemingly check out in a nap. Don't you care about this? The disciples ask. And Jesus calms the storm and asks them, not just, why, not just generally, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid of the storm? Why are you afraid of the storm? After all that you've seen me do, do you not, do you not trust me? Do you not believe me? The question that Jesus seems to pose is, brothers, who do you think is really in charge? Who do you think is really in charge? Are you at the mercy of these natural forces? Or am I over all of these things? Is it really the storms of life that stand above all things? Or does the king of creation stand above all creation? Brothers and sisters, this, this shows us what we can expect as we trust Jesus and remain his disciples. As you follow Jesus' commands and push off from shore, you will face storms. You will face affliction. You may even face torturous trials. And not just in persecution, but in life stage difficulties. In circumstances, the storms will come. Don't expect, none of us should expect smooth sailing. We should be prepared for hurricanes. We should be prepared for the boat to take on water. We should be prepared to trust him when that happens. And there will be times just as we see here, there will be times when you'll feel as though the Lord has fallen asleep during your greatest need. During great storms, facing great fears, it will seem to you at times that he is blissfully distant in the hull of the ship, lost to slumber amidst the cries for help. But let me say this. When that happens, we will not be the first to feel left on our own. Yahweh formed Eve for Adam, and then he disappeared. So Eve and Adam would face the serpent's temptation without him. After Jesus heals the man born blind in John 9, he leaves the scene, and the man faces the pharisaical attacks on his own. The disciples are thrown out into mission after Jesus returns to the Father. And I know that, our, that at this, even maybe at this moment or in light of this thinking, maybe one day my cry will echo Jesus's of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can assure you that Jesus is not asleep at this boat because he doesn't care. He sleeps to test and strengthen the faith of the disciples. 
We must trust him. We must endure and cry out in faith during the storm, knowing that he's greater than the storm. And we will fight together to remember his past faithfulness as we wait and trust him for his present faithfulness. I can also assure you, Jesus will come. He will come through the darkness and storm. And though he will challenge our fear and our lack of faith at times, he does not stay asleep. To you, as to the 12, to all of you, as to the 12, Jesus will respond to your fear. He will step out onto the deck and give a word of rebuke to the chaos. The storms will calm when Jesus arrives and you will discover a new field for mission among those who look to him for healing. Brothers and sisters, in the meantime, there is nothing to fear. Jesus sleeps not to destroy, but to strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. And by his grace, even amidst the storm, you will have fresh communion with him. We will enjoy that together. So let's turn to faith, let's turn with faith to Jesus because the cry of the smallest faith, the cry of the smallest faith will rouse him. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word Lord, we thank you for this picture of your church set out, set out into the seas that are unpredictable, that are untamable. It's a place where truly where we can only fish and it's very hard to shepherd. But we know, God, from this, we know, Jesus, you are with us by your spirit that you have placed in us. In very real ways, you are always with us. Lord, I pray that as, Lord, as sojourn is one ship among many in the seas headed for a destination Lord, to share this gospel message, to share the news that a king has won a victory, a kingdom has been established. Lord, that you would give us great courage, that you would give us great endurance, and that you would give us great trust. Father, trust is so deep. It's more than just knowing what you say. It's more than just agreeing with what you say. It's a trust in, in the way of, I believe, I believe you at your word. I believe that you will hear our cries and that you will come to aid us. Lord, turn our cries of panic to cries of trust. Lord, we'll always be in need we don't want to hide from our need, but we want to ask in faith to cry out knowing that you are there, 
that you do hear us. Lord, give us fresh faith this morning to trust you, to look to you, to cry out to you, and to believe that even if you don't respond right away, and the boat is rocking, and the waves are climbing, Lord, that we will trust again to know that you hear our cries and that you are coming to deliver us. Help us, we pray. Strengthen us, we pray. We ask all of this in the name of your Son. Amen.